Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. As a person with a very deep voice, I'm hired all the time for advertising campaigns. But a deep voice doesn't sell B2B. And advertising on the wrong platform doesn't sell B2B either. That's why if you're a B2B marketer, you should use LinkedIn ads. LinkedIn has the targeting capabilities to help you reach the world's largest professional audience. That's right, over 70 million decision makers all in one place. All the big wigs, then medium wigs, also small wigs who are on the path to becoming big wigs. Okay, that's enough about wigs. LinkedIn ads allows you to focus on getting your B2B message to the right people. So, does that mean you should use ads on LinkedIn instead of hiring me, the man with the deepest voice in the world? Yes. Yes, it does. Get started today and see why LinkedIn is the place to be to be. We'll even give you a $100 credit on your next campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash results to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash results. Terms and conditions apply. A Podcast One production. Hello, I'm Gary Megan and welcome to A Plate to Call Home where we explore the stories behind the food and get to know some of my food heroes. My very special guest today is Justine Schofield. She's the host of a popular daytime cooking show. If you don't know it, Everyday Gourmet. If you don't know it, I'm surprised. On Channel 10 and it's in its 10th season, 900 episodes and she also hosts a range of cooking and other travel series. Justine has two cookbooks to her name with a third being released next year and she's probably one of our most popular contestants from series one of MasterChef which was 2009 and she was famous for her French food. I can remember that steak bordelais. But now 11 years on Justine has built a career out of everything that she loves and has well and truly established herself as a familiar and well-respected face on Australian television and in the Australian food and media industry. And in 2019, she was also on I'm a Celebrity, Get Me Out of Here. We talk about all of that and so much more in today's episode. So here she is, Justine Schofield. Justine Schofield. Oh, oh, guys, oh Justine. It's nice, isn't it? Huh? This is really nice. It's nice this to be is... in the same studio. I like yeah, it. Yeah, memories. Well, not for me because I see you on TV pretty much every day. Yes. How many episodes of Everyday Gourmet have you filmed? We're up to season 10. 10. So but how many episodes in a... We do 90 episodes per episode. That's so, 900 yeah. episodes of yeah, television. I know. It's actually just dawned on me this year that, gee, that's a, it's a lot in terms oh, of volume, recipes. there's not many people that would have filmed 900 episodes. Well, you've almost done that. You have done that. Oh, I've got no idea. I never would, kept count. Yeah. Never, ever kept count. I just keep count because I'm like, okay, I need 90 episodes. No. I need three recipes. I need that 300 recipes a year. Let's start writing this in October for February. <laughs> like it's just a lot of it recipes. It must get hard. It. it must Look, get hard. It gets hard 
so we're actually filming our last, sorry, our season 10. So this year we're up to our last three weeks of filming. So it really starts to get hard now to be creative and not do something you've done a hundred times because food just goes around, right? Yeah. It's just the same thing yeah. over and over. So to be creative and try to do something different, it's like, oh, well, I've done a seafood lasagna. I've done a chicken, a pulled chicken lasagna. I've done a slow cooked lamb lasagna. What kind of lasagna can I do now? Meatball lasagna. A meatball lasagna. Thank you. No problem. We've done that. <laughs> We've done so did it George Columbaris. Yeah. He did He did the most expensive lasagna on MasterChef. And I remember even the cost of ingredients, one fan said it was 90 bucks. Oh, yeah. Just for the ingredients because he put ham on, he put or prosciutto, he put little chicken meatballs, he put buffalo mozzarella, whatever. I go, yeah. that's expensive lasagna, but it was delicious. Confit shallots and garlic. Yeah, I mean, if you made a big one too. You made it, yeah, it'd be more than 90 bucks. <laughs> so what does a day in the studio look like for you at H Squared? This is a small production house in Melbourne. Correct, yeah. And we've worked with uh, Lee. Lee Redlick, yeah. For many years. Lee's an amazing legend. man. He's an, a legend. That We're just like a little family and uh, we start early, so seven, and we finish around six. But, you know, look, it's great. It's just, it's quite full on when you're just by yourself because majority of the time I am by myself filming. So talking to the black hole, if you like, is quite hard for me. What do you mean by that? It doesn't come naturally. I've always said this. It doesn't come naturally to me to speak to a lens, chop, have a giggle and continue to cook, particularly because... For me, I'm not a professional chef, so uh, to be able to do things with your just not even thinking about it as cooking-wise and to talk and to instruct is I have found quite complicated and hard to do. I'm better now. I was going to say, after 900 eps, (laughs) I I think that qualifies you as a professional in cooking and television. I know, but I still do find it hard. I just get quite nervous. I think that's a good thing. It just means I care. How does that manifest Um, itself, just out of curiosity? So when you... See, if I can take you back to, say, the first five or ten episodes that you ever filmed, Every Everyday Gourmet, what did that look like? Oh, I wanted to get out of there. I was like, this is not for me. I'm not supposed to be here. <laughs> Why? Because it was just all over the place. There's no training. You were thrown in, um, said, go and have a crack at this and see what you think. Act natural. I love those words. Just act natural. Just look into the lens and pretend you're talking to your friend. Mm. Talk, t- talk to your mum on the couch. Well, I'm not. I'm looking into a black hole. It's really hard to do. <laughs> and there's a guy behind it. And there's a guy and behind it. you feel these eyes are boring into yeah. you and going, she's no good. Oh, she doesn't belong here. The beady eyes, the beady did, eyes. Did you feel a bit like that then? Absolutely. Um, I, I still do sometimes when I'm stuff up because you do stuff up a lot and you've got to go back and you say something incorrectly or filming food is not the same as just cooking naturally in your kitchen. It's actually quite hard because you do have to think of the cameramen and what they're getting and what they need from you and and all of that and then also a story behind it and a clear, concise method yeah. to it. So it is quite challenging but I do love it and it's something that I never wanted to do and now that I'm in it, I'm like, wow, this is pretty cool. Mm. I think this is a pretty cool job to do. It is pretty cool. because there's <laughs> I'm a- very lucky. The, the audience hold you to a high standard too. Mm. So I know you're trying to impress the, well, not do the right thing by the cameraman, et cetera, mm. but now there's an audience of, what, 100,000, 150,000 people going, yep. uh, that's wrong. She just said something that's not right. Yeah, yeah. And when you got to do, do your research. You've got to do your research. And when you're filming quite a lot, and it's not, it's a fast show. So it's a 30-minute show and we need to bang it out quite fast. 
So sometimes you know, oh, I, I didn't mean to say that. I wanted to say that. Mm. It's too late. It's gone. It's in the kitty. So it's in the can. It's in the can. It's in the Episode can. 428, you said this and oh. it was wrong. <laughs> I quite like that idea. <laughs> so what did you want to do? Well, I wanted to start a little French bistro, as you would know, Gary. Um, I love the idea of bringing all the delicious food that I grew up on alive. And we all know that it's just not that easy to open a restaurant. It is expensive and you need to be there and you need a lot of training before you go into something. And I, of course, was naive at the age of 23 to, th- to say, oh, I want to open a French bistro. And it just didn't happen like that. Maybe this, one day. So 2009, Master Chef? 2009. So you 23 back then? 23, yep. Wow, you were young. And wow, I'm old. thrust now. onto television. No, I'm old. <laughs> I can barely see you from where I'm sitting in my microphone. And you've got glasses on. <laughs> oh, no. Um, why a French bistro, though? Look, my mum, my dear old mum, we call her Franny now, but it's Francoise, uh, she is a wonderful French cook and I admire all the things that she's done for us. Not just that, but I, I find it must have been really hard for her coming to Australia and not being able to speak English and all she had was her food memories to bring to life, especially back then in the days. The food when was, was that? terrible. She was would have been here in the mid seventies. Uh, I remember her. She oh, was, food would have been bad in the mid seventies. Can you imagine how bad it was? Where did she land? Uh, Barrel. She in so New South Wales. Barrel, mm-hmm. and she actually started a restaurant a couple of years in because the food was that bad. Called La Popote. Yes, she had a little restaurant in Barrel, and it was a little French restaurant, and she would cook all the classics. And I remember she would tell these, my dad was in the front of house. He's very calm, you know, Aussie Larrigan. What did your dad do? Jeez, a lot going on here. I can't track it all. (laughs) So hang on, we've got, we've got a small, mum and dad, how did they meet? Um, In Greece, actually. All right. Yeah. Dad was a, um, a tour bus driver (laughs) and she was the passenger and she hooked up with the bus driver. Such an Aussie story. Yeah, she learned I don't know English. it being a French story, but it's an Aussie story. It's an Aussie story. Hooked up with the bus driver. Hooked up How long did it take her to hook up with the bus driver? Uh, well, she was on a, a tour for two weeks. That's all it took. Oh, she's a loose woman. I oh, know. God, those French <laughs> women, I tell you what. A whiskey on the rocks in one hand, cigarette in the other. That's exactly how she was in those days. I love it. Yeah. So th- that story, just to try and put it into context, so mm. fell in love with your dad. How long before... They made the decision. Did I mean, did they live together in Europe? Did they live together in France? Did they travel more? Yeah, I mean, he was doing overland bus tours. Afghanistan back in those days was apparently amazing. And uh, so he would travel quite a lot back and forth to France and then decided his work was in Australia. So mum would come that? over and she wanted to see. He was doing a lot of bus driving. Yep. And uh, she came over and wanted an adventure also and came here and, and fell in love with Australia, as many people do, uh, but not the food. And um, Does she tell you stories uh, about her first experiences yeah. back in the 70s? Yeah. Not I mean, necessarily to do with food, but just about, you know, turning up, not speaking a word of it. Well, I presume much English. Not much English at all. Yeah, I mean, she has quite a lot. She would say it was such a different area. Such a, It was just so barren for her and... You know, it was a, really a big country town coming from Paris. It was a massive eye-opener and a shock, but an interesting shock, enough for her to want to stay. And she changed her mind a few times, as my mum does. <laughs> she, they went back to France and Dad couldn't get work there because he couldn't speak French. So they came back here and finally... Why did she want to go stay. back? She missed her mum. She missed her food. She missed her wine. She missed uh, everything about France. I think deep down mum thought that they would finish, stay in France but that just didn't happen because dad couldn't get work and 
that was the final decision to come back. Did she do it once or did it happen a couple of times? Because there's a very familiar story of people emigrating to Australia yeah. and then getting all wistful and romantic about the idea of going back. Yep. And I've heard of families that do it three or four times. They did it twice. Um, <laughs> it's expensive, I bet. Yeah, and the first time she was actually pregnant with, well, when she actually had the restaurant, she uh, was pregnant with my older brother and um, decided to go back and went to give birth to him over there to say, okay, we're going to stay here. <laughs> He's going to be a little French boy. Uh, but that didn't happen. He stayed. When he was two, they came back. And the motivation was purely dad couldn't get work or did she have a realisation that maybe there was something? No, not like, unlike other people, it was, there was no work, therefore back. Back. That's no it. choice. No choice. Yeah. So what does she talk about when she goes back? What does she does talk she, yeah. about? I'm, I'm sorry to focus on your mum for a bit. But no, I think well, it's she quite, is the, the core of what I am, really. Yeah, exactly. Um, and even though some just, oh, you don't, you know, you don't do it. This is, you know, she's very French. I'm like, you don't realise how much of an influence you do have on me mm. with everything I do in life. My mum is very proud now to be an Australian. Of course she is. And my uncle also sees how when he comes to Australia, how amazing Australia is mm. and how France is very different to, way, to the way it was. When my mum does go back to France, she does go, oh, this is not the Paris. She doesn't even go to Paris. She gets off the plane and gets out of there as quick as she can because it's not the way it used to be yeah. um, in her eyes and in her opinion, of course. Oh, it's a, last time I, I went at Christmas time and I think it's a city, it's changed a lot. I've oh, been yeah. regularly over the years and, it, and, and I'm a bit of a Francophile, as you know, and, mm -hmm. and Paris has changed and it looks like you talk to any Parisian, it's a city under pressure. Oh, yeah. It's not coping. No. You know, we talk about our infrastructure problems here in Melbourne or Sydney. Mm. Paris is next level. I think it they're is. talking like 20 million people by 2050. Yeah. It's, it's massive. Things need to be done, but <clears> it's not, that's, <clears throat> that's a conversation So she for lands, that, yeah. gets out. Yeah, yeah. Let's leave that one. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so multi-layered talking about that. <laughs> gets out and goes to... Bordeaux. Yep, goes to Bordeaux. Um, we've got family also on, outside of Paris. So she has a lot of cousins. She only has one brother, um, but, you know, she has a lot of cousins. So they do all catch up. She has a half-brother, which we discovered in the last 10 years. I actually discovered on Facebook. It was just a random thing. So, yeah, there's a, there's a lot of interesting stories. And it's funny, Mum and I were just talking about it the other day, how we eat and how they used to eat in the day, having a communion or christening. She just sent me some amazing menus and the courses. They would sit down for hours for lunch, followed by a dinner, and the courses would be 10 courses of things that were just, we just don't eat that way. We wouldn't be able to fit it in. Oh, maybe me. Oh, what? <laughs> <laughs> you know, Longustine a l'American, um, Ballantines. Hey, you've got to slow down because I understand, but Dave's yes. just going, come on, what's Longustine, oh, mate? Sorry, so you, sorry. Get, you go... Longestine à l'américaine. So, so yes. Longestine are? Longestines, you know, Little Dublin fish, yeah, Bay yeah. prawns, for Or, example. you know, they would have lobster also. Mm. À l'américaine is a beautiful classic way of cooking it with white wine, uh, brandy or cognac, tomatoes, flambéed so it's with bisky, cognac. isn't it? Very bisky, but mm. very, yeah, it's done in a very simple way with the, you know, fresh tomatoes. Mm. I just, I actually cooked it on the weekend, really, with um, squid. Mm. Works a treat. And I just love that food. Finished with cream, of course, and a bit of butter. Don't forget that. Um, and it's it's just all those classics that I adore. And we but no, but just hang, on, hang on, I'm not going to let you go. So that was just one dish. Oh, yeah. I so mean, you know, it's not even lunchtime and I'm going, oh. I would like to. Langostines. These, these menus were just so long. I know, I interrupted have... you and you were just about to say another dish. Yeah. I was uh, just slowing you down so that we could understand what was in your head and what you were reading. 
Almonds with trout. I mean, that's still, people yeah. do know Beautiful. that one. So like a burnt butter with almonds in, you know, over the top, over crispy the top. skin. Yep, absolutely. And they would have... Uh, Who cares about bones? You know, our sensibility about bones here. I can't eat it. It's got bones in it. Or uh, I, can, I don't like eyes. No. You can't look at an eye don't. of the thing that I'm eating. I oh, know. But to a French person, it's just it's delicious. delicious. Sorry to go back to your mum for a moment. But yeah, do you no, find that do. your mum is a different person when she's in France? Because when you describe that... Mm-hmm. It's very connected. I mm. think the thing that I always find when I'm talking to foodies in Australia, we've been looking for connection for a long time. Like mm. what is our food? What does it mean? Mm. You know, we don't have that history. Mm. We romanticise or have done, mm. romanticise that idea of that French table or the Italian table. Mm. Absolutely. You know? And we try to recreate that a lot here in Australia and I mm. think that's why there's been a heavy influence my mother's influence on me because I try to replicate that now with my friends and my family. Um, whether there's two people or ten people, the table is always set and that's a very big French thing to do. We always finish with, depending on what we're having, but most of the time with a salad followed by some cheese and then a fruit or a dessert depending on what type of event is it. Could be just a Monday night for all we know. But the table is always set and it's like this honing in on this is who we are and this is how we connect with our past and it reminds me of my grandmother. My mum would send, mum and dad would send me on a plane when I was 10. We'd go on the plane, the, a flight attendant would take me and then they'd pass me on to another one halfway there and I would go to France to spend a whole summer with my grandmother because my mum found it was very important to make sure I know where she came from who my grandmother was, who my grandfather was, who she to know that don't ever let that side of mm. her die. And what a bra- number one, what a brave little girl, but also mm. what a brave mum. Yes. Can you imagine putting your daughter on a plane? I, got, I mean, I don't have any children, but I just go, I don't know anyone who would send their 24 child 24 hours like on a plane. Yeah. And I can't remember being traumatised. I think it was a little bit more excitement because I was very close to mm. my mum's mum. Very, very close. So describe her. Meme, we would call her. Mm. And uh, she was uh, just the most amazing woman because she was just an extension of my mother. So it was just, they almost smelt the same. They always looked the same. <laughs> so Lola. when you say smell the same, can't describe that for us. Well, you know, they would wear I hope it's not mothballs or chamomile. Not mothballs, hairspray. <laughs> um, and just, you know, freshly pressed clothes all the time and they always had an apron on. So I just found that it was quite nice. And I, I have very strong memories of going to France, getting off the plane, Charles de Gaulle, and being whisked away with my grandmother and her brother, he had a little place where he would make um, Calvados. So he'd pick all the apples and we'd go and pick all the apples. And, you know, with all the oldies, we would go and go foraging for mushrooms. It was just hilarious. I remember actually once coming back to Australia, this is quite bad, and having a mushroom in my pocket in my big parker that obviously I stole when we were <laughs> going and come, coming back to Australia and finding a beautiful dried mushroom in my pocket. I'm like, oh, that's from France. I don't know if that yeah. was the right they to weren't, do that. I don't think they were stopping kids looking for one single dried mushroom. <laughs> I think I was going to be <laughs> Do you okay know what mushroom it was? Just out of curiosity, do you remember? Oh, it could have been can't a sepa, it could have been a girole. <laughs> <laughs> I can't tell you now, it was so shriveled up. Well, there you go. Yeah. And now you declare everything. Oh, of absolutely, course. yeah. Not a suitcase of dried calamari coming in with you. No, but you know when we used to come back from France, always bring back some foie gras. Yeah. And at the borders, they had no idea what this was and they'd take it off us all the time. It'd be so annoying because we'd get the ones in the can and the preserved ones. 
which now you can't bring in. in. Of course you can, yeah, yeah. Can you bring in fresh foie gras now? I don't know if you can. I think no, it's got to be pasteurised and vacuum packed at exactly. least. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. And mm. I feel guilty saying foie gras, but foie gras to a lot of people is a disgusting thing, oh. just the way it's reared, et cetera. Yeah. Not that they're, they're running around on their own. I mean, it's the fattened liver of a goose or duck. That's right. But it is a delicious thing. It's absolutely delicious and it's not something you have every day. It's and it's uniquely French in a sense, isn't it's it? It's absolutely, yeah, it's uniquely French and it's got that beautiful earthy, deepy, not irony, livery flavour. That's what's yeah. so unique about it because it's so fatty. Mm. But just that on Christmas, yeah. you know, Christmas Eve with a glass of champagne, mm, delicious. See, I, had a, I worked for just a Just a little bit. Oh, a little bit. <laughs> I, it's one of the things when I touch down in France, cheese is my first hit. Mm. There's a, you know, it's like a hit list, cheese, number one. I often go and stay in the Marais. I, I, sound, I sound very, um, sounds snobby. I'm sorry, Dave. I just stay in the Marais. You know, you know, the Marais. It's, why, why would you go anywhere else? Yeah, it's beautiful. Marais. And there's a little, uh, near the Rue, I think it's Grand Bretagne, there's a little cheese and butter shop that's like literally, it's near the uh, Marché de Rougeon font, yep. is that right? Yeah. And it, just around the corner there's a little cheese shop. And I literally, my wife knows that there's not even unpacking happening. Just I just go. like walk in. We often stay in the same apartment. I just like, I'm gone. Yeah. And she goes, careful, don't buy too much. And I, <laughs> and I do, there's like a little triangle I can do where I can pick up cheese because there's Nowhere in, on the planet yeah. does cheese like the French. Oh, I really. was there last year and there was those two days that were, it was a heat wave in Paris. And when there's heat in Paris, everything mm. breaks down because it's, they don't have air con. It's just so hot. It was so hot. And I still had the time to eat cheese. And you think, hot day, cheese. No, it was fine to be in there just to be collecting the cheese. So why aren't the French fat? You know what they don't do? They have a breakfast, which is a coffee, maybe a little croissant, and not even. You have a bit of bread and butter or jam. You don't snack until 1 o'clock, 2 o'clock, and then you have a good lunch. For a couple of hours. For a couple of hours. And take your time. Oh, you, you need to digest, right? It's mm. very important. And then you work it off in the day. You go back to work, you do things. And at night time, if you're going to have a big lunch, you don't have a big dinner. You have an omelette, uh. a little salad. You have a bit of cheese and a glass of wine. And you're happy with that. It's all about balance. None of that snacking in between. That's where I go wrong. Even when I don't snack, I have a big dinner and I have cheese Mm. and a glass of wine or two. And then wonder why I keep putting weight on. I love making this series and I hope that you love listening too. If you do, subscribe and send us a message because believe it or not, we actually read those messages. What we want to know is what you think about the show, more importantly about the conversations that we have with our guests. We love hearing from you. That's what I'm trying to say. You can do that on Apple Podcasts, Podcast One Australia or wherever you listen. And if you're feeling like it, maybe even recommend the show to a friend. You never know, they might find it as delicious as you do. Mum's restaurant. La Popote. What does that mean? means, you know, in the pot. It's a big pot kind of thing. Right. Okay. <laughs> what do you remember from that? How old were you? I was not born. Oh. So it was before. No, yeah. no memories of the restaurant? No. She no tugging on your mum's um, apron strings? God, no. No big arguments with mum and dad? No, 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 no. That was way before those days. Uh, she was, she used to say that um, Nolene Brown, is it? Graham Kennedy? Mm. Would come in. Famous they were her people. client. Yes. And uh, she would throw anyone out that would ask for the lamb sauce on their fish and the fish sauce on the lamb because she just couldn't understand why you would even want mm. that. So she was quite an aggressive cook. 
And dad was the one that calmed everyone down and said, no worries, he's another free glass of wine. <laughs> so the, the, the restaurant didn't last for too long. Um, but it is nice to drive past and say, oh, so this is where it was. And they would live upstairs and yeah. they would cook downstairs. Then again, she would get, she, so not again, she'd get pregnant. <laughs> it sounds like a bit of a flute. But um, no, she, um, she got pregnant with my um, older brother. So that's when they went back to France. Right. So she gave it a crack and she wanted to do it. Her, when I asked her, why did you have a restaurant? You weren't a chef. You had no expertise in it. You were a great cook, though. She, and she said the food was just terrible. She remembers Dad took her out for, a, you know, a lobster dinner once and it was a lobster boiled, so boiled that it was so dry and it was served with canned beetroot. And she said, no, 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 no. C'est impossible. We can't yeah. have this. <laughs> I'll cook myself. And that's what she did and it was quite popular and in barrel back in those days to why, have. And why do you think it didn't work then? Just because it's a complicated business? And they, it's complicated business and just like many people, you're going into a business, they didn't have a business mind. Dad certainly didn't. Mum didn't know either. Um, it was just too hard to make money off it. Was it a bad time for the family, closing the business? No, well, I actually, she's, she doesn't talk too much about it. All she knew is she really, I think she was quite homesick when the business wasn't working and the best thing to do, and she was also pregnant and wanted to really work out where to establish themselves. So that's why she decided, well, let's go back to France and give it a crack. So that was the catalyst. And that was it, yeah. Yeah. Yep. So for you, why did you go on MasterChef? Why did you put your hand up? I want to know. Yeah. I am so glad I went on the first one because it was totally... Yeah, but hang on a minute. Why did you go on? Why did I go on yeah, it? I went on it because I was selling security cameras. I hated sales. I hated sitting at a desk. I didn't train to become a chef. I know deep down I wanted to do it. I went to university and studied business, but didn't want to. But I felt guilty to my parents because they worked so hard to put me through private school. They just wanted to see their children go to university. In you know, parents can be selfish sometimes. So um, I just thought I'd do that for them, but just didn't love it and always still wanted to go into cooking. And still didn't do it because also, and also I was one of those kids that just had a fear of missing out, wanted to party, 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 party and be selfish between the ages of 18 and, and 23. So therefore didn't want to go do the hard yards in the kitchen. Mm. And that's the truth. And therefore this came up and I didn't have Foxtel, but a friend showed me this show called MasterChef and it was the UK MasterChef that was running, which is very different to ours. And it was, you go in, you cook. You I cook, cook well, you stay, you cook terribly, you're out. And I was like, okay, this is good. This is not one of those reality shows where it's all sobby and show your personal side. It's just about the cook. And I love the idea of a challenge like that because it was either go for this and just, just well, I've got nothing to lose, just apply, or go to France and do a stage over there. And that was in the in the making because I just didn't want to sit at a, at a desk anymore to sell sec a security but why cameras. Why were you selling security cameras? Like how um, the hell do you end up selling Yeah, well, before cameras? that I was selling, I got out of university and couldn't find a did job. Did you finish uni or did you? I did finish yeah. uni, yeah. And sales, I just needed to work because I wanted to travel. So a sales job was great because you make, you know, a half decent crust on that. So I got a job selling conferencing, which was boring as. And then I got poached to do selling of security cameras. I mean, I wish it was selling tomatoes. I would have done a better job doing that. But it was security <laughs> cameras. And uh, I think I was there for a year. I didn't sell any. How do you sell a security camera? I'm just. It's. Um, isn't it already sold by the time somebody's gone? 
On no, because it was security cameras for businesses, so you'd go in and sell oh. an entire system, which I had no idea about. I was just faking They're it. Painful. I was faking it the whole businesses, time. Businesses, that is. So the part of your personality that made you put your hand up to go on MasterChef, was it a serious stagiaire kind of person or was it the party girl that was at uni? Do you know what I mean? Because I'm, I'm picturing this naughty girl, to be honest, that's, yeah. you know, you're having a great time, you're at uni, you've fallen into a sales job and then you see this thing on TV. I was bored, really. I was bored and I wanted to get out of sales. And I was going to go to uh, France anyway right. and that was the plan. It was a friend that said, but you cook so well and you really love having people over all the time and, and testing things on people. Just it's so weird to do TV stuff because I don't know anyone from TV, but just go for it. Like it would be quite funny, wouldn't it? And I was like, well, I guess so. And I remember filling in the form at work because I would do anything not to work you know, selling security cameras, and I would fill it in. And I just remember writing, and there was many, many questions on the application form, and I enjoyed doing it. I enjoyed writing about food and what are my food, what do I love to eat, and and, and where does it come from? And it was just, it, it came quite naturally to write about it. And I was like, oh, that was easy. This could be quite fun. Mm. Anyway, whatever, continue on exploring uh, how I'm going to get to, how I'm going to save enough money to get to France, to stay over there, to live over there and to learn how to cook that way that I really am passionate about. And then all of a sudden I was called in to yeah. do a, a trial or a, whatever you want to call yeah. it, not a trial. The rest is history. Favourite experience, worst experience out of that? On MasterChef? Yeah. Um, favourite experience. It's a long time ago now. It was such a long time ago. I remember one challenge where I had to cook. Uh, we cooked for Jacques Raymond and Margaret Fulton. and <laughs> Just uh, two small names in hospitality. Yeah, amazing. It was just fantastic. And they, they really enjoyed my duck dish, which was with an agri-douce sauce. And I just remember pushing myself for that challenge. And it was just such a sense of achievement when... You know, when, when we did get praise, when we did get praise from our beloved judges. Mm. I wonder why you lifted your eyes to the ceiling when you said that. <laughs> <laughs> when we did. It was new for us too. I know. And I think all of us were in the same boat because mm. it was a foreign experience. And unless you were in it, it's very hard to describe. It really is hard to describe because it was just going with the flow and not knowing if this was going to be big or not. And we had no idea. You guys probably would have. But we had no idea what was going on and it was just, we were just cooking and it was a cooking class on steroids. It's so boring to say that, but it really was because we had these amazing chefs judging us and food critics judging us on something that really we didn't know about. We just knew we loved food and we loved to cook and we wanted to get better at it and that's it. Worst experience though? Worst experience when uh, it was actually, there was two, but the worst one was when I cooked. It was the French challenge. It was mine to win. Oh, yeah. And um, I did a Bordelais sauce with a steak. And dear Gary, you said it was jammy and almost tastes like Vegemite. Fantastic. Yeah. You Must made have me been cry true, that though. day. Yeah. <laughs> Must have been true. I wouldn't have said it otherwise. It, and it was true. The worst thing it about it is that's the kind of thing I love, you see. Yeah. And that was, I think, in future seasons of MasterChef contestants started to work us out. You know, like if they're going to put something up that we love, it yeah. better be like perfect. And Otherwise you're going to get criticism. You need to be told. Always fair. It was fair, most of it, yes. Always fair. I don't I mean, think I should have gone out on a seven-layer chocolate cake. Um, anyway, <laughs> let's not bring up that. <laughs> <laughs> but out of that season one, and don't forget even the exec producers, the production company were learning out of that too. Absolutely. I remember for the first few episodes, contestants were eliminating themselves 
Do you remember that? Mm. How ridiculous was that? No one remembers that. It was classic. At the very beginning, it was classic reality and they tried to overlay that classic reality Mm. until we all found our feet and Mm. when actually the food and the fair play and the judging, et cetera, all kind of works Mm. and let the contestants' personalities come out naturally rather than kind of force everything, which is classic reality TV. And that's what we were scared of though. We were like, we just want to cook and we hope this is not going to be another one of those Mm. reality shows. Putting 20 people together that didn't know each other, sleeping on bunk beds mm. and... Well, sharing well, a house. Sharing a house. Yeah. You're going to get fights and you're going to get disagreements. Yeah. And there was. And they did film that. But they chose not to go down that path and it worked really well for them. It's done okay. Yeah. That little show. That we, little show. You did okay too, didn't you? <laughs> and out of, actually out of that first series, so many people have done so well. I mean, whether it's Poe or Julie or Andre Ossini or yourself. Oh, Andre. Or, you know. That's great, yeah. I mean, and some real success stories. Mm. When I type in... Justine Schofield, mm. everything's very controlled, everything's very delivered. Do you know what I mean? There's mm. no controversy. You've never been caught for speeding. There's no wild parties at your oh, place yeah. with illicit drugs. Oh. Like where's what kind of person are you? Does that make me boring? I don't know. I like the idea of why do you have to know everything about my personal life? Mm. I want to be seen as that person that is teaching that home cook how to poach the eggs. And I'm really content with that. I don't want more. I'm like that side of it and my personal life, well, everyone has a personal life, don't they? What do you, What else do you want to know? I'm, I mean, I'm obsessed with food. I get back sometimes from cooking all day on Everyday Gourmet and just to unwind I'll cook myself a little pasta dish just to, that's, I just love it. I just love it. I don't like exercise. I like cheese. You're not happy with my answer but no, that's all I'm, I've got I'm for letting you. you go because silence sometimes you get, you know, mm. you get more. You see, I like yeah, that. Yeah, but th- but that's very deliberate. There there are there are celebrities. When I say celebrities, there are people in the public eye that mm. go out of the way to exploit the publicity, right? And there are other people that don't. Yeah, I think I try my hardest to go the opposite way. And where why I'm is just, that? Because I don't I don't think it's essential to know all everything else in my life. Why? I think it's nice to really define me as 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 for my cooking as opposed to everything else. Your fans would want more. But they get more on Instagram about my food journeys at home. <laughs> and that's it, guys. That's, all that's you, it. And that's all you're getting. Most important person to you. I think you've probably answered that. Yeah, we've answered that. Um, of course, mum. I love all my mum and dad. They, I mean, they're just a great couple and they're just, they are who I am. And I just love that they were such a nurturing couple and they're so opposite, they're polar opposites. And um, I've just learned quite a lot off them. And I really believe in in their values and my values. I haven't gone against the grain with that. And yeah, I just I just love them for that. And I also have I feel like there's this um pressure on me to, to really know and really embrace where I come from. Not a pressure, but me personally, I want to make sure I keep that alive. Um, and I, that's why I talk about it quite a lot because I don't ever want that to go away. If I ever have children, I want them to know because things change over time. And um, I love the I mean, I wish I could speak French better than I do. I understand it a lot, but I just want to keep that alive as much as possible. Having done MasterChef, was it an obvious thing, the direction you went? Because there are some contestants that nothing happens and other contestants where they become incredibly successful. I think it's important to say that... We did MasterChef the first one. We had no expectations from it. All we wanted was to change our careers. Uh, we had nothing to go on apart from uh, the UK version, which was totally different to us. And then we wanted to get into the industry some way. 
and um, I started a little catering business afterwards and then these wonderful opportunities came afterwards. Again, I didn't go out to search for them. They came to us, to, to me, and said, oh, do you want to do a show? And I think I originally said, oh, well, no, obviously I don't know how to talk to a camera. So that came afterwards and it was so foreign and still unsure. And I, I always remember this time when I was doing, I wanted to do work experience at ARIA with Matt Moran and I was there and, and I said to Maddie, oh, look, I've been offered this show. Do I take it or should I really probably should stay here because what do I know about teaching other people how to cook? I don't have the qualifications to teach people on TV how to cook. It was, you can ask him, it was exactly like this. And he said, listen, you can stay here and keep picking those, uh, the parsley leaves and learning how to make potato mash, but you can always come back here. But if a show has been offered to you, you take it. You'd be foolish not to because it's not going to come back again. Mm. And I said, oh, so does that mean I should go? And he said, just go. And if it doesn't work out, you can come back here and we'll put you. He goes, I'm not going to pay you, but you can do work experience for a little longer. And I remember that. Yeah, Matt Moran, that's good advice. Mm. It is good advice because what I was thinking there is there moments in time it's the same in my career. Mm. And I, actually, when I remember talking to Matt Preston, I said, what do you reckon your success in, in, in what, why are you successful in what you do? He said, because when, don't quote me on this, but when a path presents itself, when you want it, when you need to turn right, or there's an opportunity to turn left or whatever it is, take it because you yep. don't know what, what lies ahead. So that little moment when somebody approached you, whether it was Lee or whoever, yep. you know, at age squared to do that show, that's a game changer, yep. isn't it? It was a total game changer and because I, I really didn't, I was scared. Mm. And again, it was just like that point of do I do MasterChef or not? And it was just go for it, expect the worst. I know this is not a great attitude, but I always go expect the worst and plan for what happens if it doesn't work out and then you may be pleasantly surprised. And I think mm. I go into a lot of these uh, unknown territories with that attitude and when it doesn't work, it's like, okay, well, we gave it a crack. And also getting out of your comfort zone because I've always been very comfortable in what I do and doing those little challenges and, and pushing myself into the unknown has actually worked out the best for me, even though it was uncomfortable right at the beginning. But just going for it and seeing how it goes, it's been quite good. Have you ever thought about where you would be if you hadn't have jumped on the MasterChef, you know, application or if you, even if you hadn't even taken that opportunity to do Everyday Gourmet? Does it cross your mind? Absolutely. I hope that if I didn't do MasterChef, I would have done that stage in France and then have and would have been working in a restaurant and, and followed my dream, which was always to cook. Everything else bored me. I didn't like anything else apart from travel. Um, it was always about cooking. So 900 episodes of Everyday Gourmet, that's a pretty good run by anybody's judgment. Have there been dark times in that 10 years or nine years since MasterChef that you don't talk about? Because you don't, you're very private. Of course, but um, I think for me every year it's the terror of knowing am I going to get the show back or not. It's not like I have, okay, this is a contract that you've got for five years in your suite. No, for, for Everyday Gourmet it's we wait every year to find out if you have it or not. People in who work for themselves like I do is we just wait to get the green light constantly for the next job. Uh, so one year you might have a fantastic year and the next year you may not. And also 90 episodes, we film from February to June, July. There's a lot of things you have to say no to. 
And it's not all about everyday gourmet. I do have other uh, projects that I'd love to do <laughs> and sometimes you can't get around it. However, let me just say I am very grateful for what I have. And also with TV, when you're cooking on TV, if you're having a really bad day or a really good day, you still need to smile and be chirpy and we're going to be cooking and you need to really have that energy all the time. And there's a lot of things that I've, I've had terrible breakups in the times in the middle of filming where you just feel like you're like, you know, girls especially feel like their life is over, that there's a bad breakup and you still need to go in and, and smile and, you know, um, lots of uh, personal things have happened where you just need to turn, you need to just keep smiling <laughs> yeah, so um, because it's not one of those jobs where you can hide behind your computer and, and, and just grieve by yourself. You need to be open constantly. Um, so, yeah, there have been those challenges. But Can you, can you think of a, a specific moment? You know, and what I'm conscious of with you is that you film in Melbourne but you live in Sydney. Yeah. So you're filming in Melbourne for close to six months a year, yeah. commuting up and down, yeah. living a TV life, which is a weird thing. Yeah. You're trying to be private and keeping stuff out of the – yeah. Know, and just be justing off everyday gourmet. Yeah. I mean, that's, it's, it's difficult to juggle, right? It's t- it's very difficult to juggle. And and at the beginning, it was really hard because it was that homesickness of going to a different um, city and working really, really hard and missing your family and your friends. And, you know, I've had a lot of terrible relationships because it's always, I'm always on the road. So it's just really hard to keep up that appearance and coming back on the weekends to just turn around and go back in that four or five month period. So it is hard. But I might remember once I just was just devastated about something and just filming and I was cooking a chips actually. <laughs> and I just couldn't finish the segment because I was just trying so hard to be strong. I just had to get the hell out of there. And that's the one time, the only time I've walked off set. What were you devastated about? Oh, well, it was a breakup, another one, you know. <laughs> Can we not talk about personal things? Why not? <laughs> okay, well, that that was, I mean, I'm a stronger person now, but I remember I have had two terrible breakups throughout the 10 years and it all comes down to just not being around because I'm on the road and I think it's one of those things where I'm addicted to, I never say no to the jobs and I, and I love it because I just love doing what I do and I'm very grateful for the opportunities. So I want to make sure I do a good job and am present all the time. So when you just do need to give your personal life a bit of attention, sometimes that doesn't get the attention that it needs. And then when Everyday Gourmet is over, which is totally you know, you're in the box of everyday gourmet and, and all your other jobs. And then when you do get a break, you're like, oh, oh, I feel quite lonely now because you've got to go back to your life, which you've almost destructed. <laughs> it's, been, it's been destructive because you haven't given it any attention. So how do you think about that going forward? The word balance, balance, balance. And I find that hard to grasp or do because my number one love is everyday gourmet <laughs> and um, I give it a lot of attention. But, you know, now I'm in a, a loving relationship and I am reminded and I remind myself that you do need to say no to something sometimes to give that attention because don't forget I am 35 now. Oh, wow. Yeah. Well, as a woman, 35 is, is that big number where you do need to go, right, you do want to have children one day, yes. You do want to get married one day, yes. Uh, so you do need to think about that. It's Let's not pussyfoot around it. You do need to think about your personal life more. Maybe next year I'll think about it. 
this year it's all about everyday comedy. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. But you're going to have to think about it. If that's I really your, do. Yeah, your I need. I, yeah, I need where, to. Where do you want to be in five years' time? Give us five years. Five years, I would still. I hope. Um, year fifteen of everyday gourmet, and also you know maybe still in a loving relationship and being with a loving, supportive partner who understands my crazy, crazy world, which is mm. uh, taking jobs every, willy-nilly and always constantly cooking. I just love it. I really and do. And a couple of little kids that, I don't know, you're feeding and cheese to. And I hope to. that, yeah. Oh, I mean, it my, or, my you kids, know. if I have kids and I touch wood, I hope I do have kids one day, I can't wait to feed them. Little steak bourdelaise. Oh, yes. Not jammy. Not overcooked. Oh, absolutely not. It's about freshness. You've got to keep that freshness in there. Gary just, and scarred from that. It's all right. It, it'll stick with you. And every time you make a Bordelais sauce, hopefully you go, I can't reduce it too much and I can't overcook it. Justine Schofield. Got a little bit of personal stuff, which I like. And I'm just, I love the fact that you're still doing everyday gourmet, that it's so successful. And another five years would be nice. Another five years would be wonderful. Looking wonderful. forward to it. Thanks, guys. When you think of France... I think of cheese, but you also think of butter because butter makes everything better. If you've never made butter before, it is dead easy. In its simplest terms, it is essentially cream that splits and the fats coagulate together. So if you put the cream in a jar, put the lid on, shake the hell out of it, eventually you'll end up with the solids, which is the butter, and then the whey, which is like the milky substance that comes out from it. To make it easier, if you put the cream on a mixer and just turn it on with a whisk attachment and just let it go, eventually it will split and you will get those butter solids. And then what you do is you take those butter solids, put them into a sieve or a colander, and then you just rinse them, sounds weird, with cold water, or you can actually dip it, that whole colander, into ice water and you manipulate it, squeeze it, move it around. And what you're essentially doing is you're bringing that fat or those fats together and removing the whey, which is the bit that you don't want. Now you can keep the whey and make something from it, but the butter that you get from freshly churned cream is insanely good. Add a touch of salt and essentially that's it. Give it a go. Plate to Call Home is a Podcast One production produced by Dave Swalensky with audio production by Darcy Thompson. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.